0: Well, hello, Grove friends, family. So great to see you, or at least be with you again today. For all of you moms out there, I just want to say Happy Mother's Day, May tenth. What a great day for us to honor the the gals in our life who have loved us and cared for us and served us, and really, in so many ways, shown us the heart of Jesus. Let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to grab your Bible, grab that page of notes for this week's message. If you haven't printed it off yet, go ahead and pause and go ahead and and, and print. And if you haven't got things ready for communion yet, let me encourage you to do that. Grab some liquid, grab grab something solid, a cracker, um, some wafers, something, a potato chip, and get those together. And if you need to put pause on for a moment while you go do that, let me encourage you to do that. Take care of that and then be turning in your Bibles to Joshua, the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book of the Old Testament, and uh, that's where we're going to be today as we can continue in our series, Unwavering. So as we're beginning this morning, I just, I just want for all of us to admit it. We are living in a day of fear. With COVID-19, this pandemic raging around us in the world, I'm I'm really honestly taken by the number of people who are afraid. I mean, seriously afraid. Afraid that they'll catch the virus, afraid that they'll die, afraid of all the financial ramifications. I'll lose my job, lose my car, lose my house. I won't be able to feed my family. Now, I mean, when you start thinking about it, it's easy to understand how people got there. All over the airwaves, the radio, the internet, the television we're hearing, we're hearing that that there's more to worry about. More infections are coming, more death is coming. The, this invisible thing is creeping ever closer to your doorstep. Eight weeks into our self-quarantine and things don't seem to be getting any better. I mean, every chart I see, every graph I see, just, I mean, is literally going up. I I, I see numbers that are just, I don't see them leveling. I just, I see them continuing on their climb. And so many prognosticators are, are, are predicting that we haven't even seen the worst yet. It's going to be a summer of carnage. Well, wave two will be significantly worse than the, than the last eight weeks. We will never get back to normal. I mean, what is a person supposed to do? When, when life appears to be falling in, how should you respond Well, I have a thought for you. How about this? When life is hard, when life is falling in, trust God. The call of the Bible is for you to put your trust in the Lord. You can read the encouragement to trust God all over the Bible. Like like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, he will make your path straight. When life has smacked you down and left you bloodied, how how are you supposed to respond? Trust God. Believe the promises that he has made to you. Promises like Deuteronomy chapter 31, 6, where God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Or, Or or promises like in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where God says, when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you will be able to stand up underneath it. God will never let anything into your life that you can't handle, that you will not be able to say no to. How about Philippians four, nineteen, the promise that says, my God will supply, he will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. James chapter 1, verse 17 says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. You can trust Him. It's exactly where God wants you to be in the midst of this pandemic that we're facing. He wants you to trust Him. Now, not only does the Bible call us to put our trust in God, it also gives us all kinds of examples of people who did exactly that. And there's no better example of that than in the opening chapters of the book of Joshua. As the book of Deuteronomy ends, Moses has died. The man who had led Israel for 40 years, the man who was on Mount Sinai and received the 10 commandments, the man who who was responsible to, to stand between God and Pharaoh and the plagues came, I mean, Moses was gone. And now the Israelites are on the verge of once again entering into the promised land. And that's where we're picking up the story. Entering into the promised land, take two. Now, For the previous 40 years, the Israelites had been on the receiving end of God's faithful provision. And don't miss the point that God's faithfulness had been poured out in a very difficult and strenuous time for the Israelites. They had been wandering around the wilderness for the past 40 years, and they had been wandering because of the sin of their parents and grandparents. The consequences of their sin was that every Israelite over 20 years of age, except Joshua and Caleb, had died in the wilderness. But even in the midst of their punishment, God had faithfully taken care of them. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses three through four, Moses reminded the people how God had fed them every day, how how he had made sure that they had all the water that they needed, that that their shoes and their clothes did not wear out for 40 years, their sandals in in the wilderness never wore out. I I read one time about what it would have taken to feed and water three million people, the three million Israelites in the wilderness, in the desert, According to the quartermaster general of the army, it would take three million pounds of food each and every day. And to bring that much food to the Israelites, it would have taken a freight train with boxcars that extended for two miles. And in in addition to that, you you would need 11 million gallons of water each and every day. That would take an additional freight train with four miles of tanker trucks attached. And remember, these people weren't marching around in a lush forest. It, It was the wilderness. There was nothing out there. It was barren. And yet every day for 40 years, all the food and all the water that they needed showed up. Even in the midst of their punishment, God took care of them. It speaks of the amazing faithfulness of God. And the point is you can trust him. And then when the last of the unfaithful generation had died, God turned this new generation, their kids and grandkids, back towards the promised land. It might've been a new day, but the truth is it was the same old nemesis. And what I mean by that. Is, is that even though 40 years had passed, the truth is that nothing much had really changed. In fact, everything that had driven this new generation's parents and grandparents to, to fear and disobedience and sin with God, it was still present. So let, let's take a moment and look back. Let, let, let's, let's go back 40 years, 40 years earlier to the debacle that happened at Kadesh Barnea. Now in Numbers 13, the children of Israel arrived in Kadesh Barnea. And just to give you a little bit, a picture of the lay of the, ground, lay of the land, I got a map here for you. The children of Israel came out of Egypt, And when they came out of Egypt, they made a right turn, not towards the promised land going left. They they went south down to Mount Sinai. They were there for about a year. They got the Ten Commandments. They they built the tabernacle. They got the law of God. And then after that year was passed, they turned north and went towards the promised land. They, They landed in Kadesh Barnea. And when they arrived in Kadesh Barnea, God God had them send out spies into the promised land, pick 12 men, one one man from each tribe, 12 men. And then they were given by Moses specific instructions in in Numbers chapter 13, verses 17 through 20 about what they were supposed to do. They, They were to go in to the land, to the promised land, to see what it was like. To see what the people were like, whether they were strong or weak, to see what their cities were like, whether they were walled and fortified or not, to see how the soil of the land was, whether it was fertile or poor. Now, the purpose of this spy mission was to get a general impression of the Promised Land. They had been hearing about this place for 400 years, since the time that Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and and his relatives, there were 70 of them all, came to Egypt during during the famine in Genesis 46. And from that point forward, for the next 400 years they lived, grew into slavery, grew into a nation. And now, now that nation has come to the verge of the promised land. They're on the verge of receiving the promise. And God wanted them to get a taste of what they were getting. So 40 days later, the spies returned and when they returned, they returned with an unbelievable hoard of, of fruit that had come straight out of the land. The land was everything that they had heard of. It really was flowing with milk and honey, but what left the spies stuttering was the people of the land. Their cities were well fortified. They had chariots made out of iron Some of the people they saw were giants. Remember David fighting that giant Goliath in 1 Samuel, that Philistine who was over nine feet tall? The spies came back and reported all of it to the Israelites. They showed them the food, and then they told them about the cities and the giants. And it all ended with these words, We can't, Numbers 13, 31, we cannot attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And then down in verse 33, it says, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look like the same to them. Now, now remember, remember that these are the same people who had seen the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world at that time, destroyed. God had parted the Red Sea and allowed the children of Israel to to march across on dry ground. It was an amazing miracle that should have been fresh in their their memory. And then with the Egyptian army following them into the sea, uh, God then brought the sea back together and the whole entire army was drowned. The Israelites should have been quick to trust God, but all they heard was giants and it drove the people to fear. And they decided that they wanted to have nothing to do with it. In fact, they decided they liked the desert over the promised land. So God turned them back around. God said, fine, to the desert you will go. Their punishment would be to wander in the wilderness. The spies were in the land for 40 days. The children of Israel would march in the wilderness for one year for every day. 40 years. And more, every person over the age of 20 would die. That generation would never see the promised land, which led to Joshua 1. It was, it was now 40 years later. And as we come to this point, honestly, nothing had changed. Seriously, the land was still flowing with milk and honey. The fruit and produce from the land was still absolutely amazing. And the cities were still fiercely protected with walls and fortifications. And some of the people living in the land were still giants. It was 40 years later and nothing in the land had really changed. What God was hoping was that the heart of his people had changed. This new generation God was hoping would be a generation of trust, that they would believe that God was true to his word, that he was going to give them the land just like he had promised. And so as we come to Joshua 1, the children of Israel were preparing to invade. Forty years earlier, the Israelites had come straight up out of the wilderness to to Kadesh Barnea. But this time, God took them on a different route. This time, God swung them over to the east, and he, he swung them over to the east side of the Dead Sea. In Numbers 21, they moved to the east side of the Dead Sea, moving toward the east side of the Jordan River. And, and there they sent word to Sihon, king of the Amorites. They were asking kindly for permission to pass through his land, pass through his kingdom. And they promised that while they were passing, they would stay right on the main highway. They would not touch a thing. They wouldn't step into any fields. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even take one piece of fruit from a tree. They wouldn't dip into any well. They would not drink any of their water. Sihon responded to the, to the ask by sending his army out against Israel. Sihon's Sihon's desire was to cut them down, to kill them all. It was really an ingenious move on God's behalf. See, Israel didn't even have a chance to decide what they were gonna do here. Sihon and his army are just suddenly upon them and they had no choice but to fight. And the result of the battle was that Sihon and his entire army were destroyed. In fact, Israel took possession of the entire land of Sihon, every city, every every piece of ground. And then suddenly they were facing the next king to the north, which would have been Og. King Og and his entire army came against Israel and the exact same thing happened. This powerful king and his powerful army destroyed. And now with the children of Israel on the east side of the Jordan, facing towards the promised land, Joshua decided to do something that might make you scratch your head. He decided to send out spies, two of them. Now, 40 years ago, Joshua was one of them. 40 years ago, this didn't go so well. So what was different this time around? Well, two things, let me tell you. First, in the first exploration, it was a general overview to see the big picture of the land. When Moses sent out these 12 spies in Numbers 13, they they were sent out to walk the length and the breadth of the land. And they were instructed to not make contact with the people. They were to stay away from them. Take a survey, see what you see. see. And it, it enabled these men to become scared to death. And it's exactly what happened. They came home and they scared all the people to death. But this sec, second, the second exploration was different. It was a laser pointed peak into one city, and that city was Jericho. In Joshua chapter two, verse one, Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, "Go look over the land," he said, "especially Jericho." So the spies went, and they entered the house of a prostitute by the name of Rahab and they stayed there. This time around, the spies got an up close and personal reaction to what the people of Jericho were thinking, what they were feeling about the Israelites who were camped just a couple of miles away. So as they're in Rahab's house, what did they find out? Well, that, that's very interesting. See, you, you have to know that the king of Jericho is well aware that just a few miles away over the Jordan River was, was this large army Three million people, 600,000 armed men. And then someone told the king that Israel had sent, sent a couple of spies into the city to check it out. And that these guys were at Rahab's house. The king immediately sent some of his soldiers to grab the spies and bring them in for questioning, probably kill them. So they, these soldiers come to Rahab's house. They bang in the door. They say, we're looking for the, for the, for the men from Israel that have come here. And, and Rahab lied. She she told the king's soldiers that the spies had come, they had gone. And then when the soldiers scurried off to report to the king what they found, Rahab made her way up to the roof where she had hidden the spies and she spilled her guts. So what did she tell them? Well, two things. First, she she told them that the people of Jericho had heard of the fame of the Lord Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Get this, Rahab, a Canaanite woman, a prostitute Canaanite woman, is giving these two spies a lesson in Israel's history. She was well informed and, and she's reciting it back to the spies. And that, that, that caused all the people of Jericho to be scared out of their minds. They, they, they were coming undone. Rahab declared in Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And then she went on in verse 11, when we heard of it, all these things that the Lord had done, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Do you think about this. 40 years earlier, when the 12 spies went out, the Israelites were afraid of the inhabitants of the land. But now 40 years later, the truth comes out. The inhabitants of the land were afraid of the Israelites. But make sure you see what drove the Canaanites to fear. It was the Lord, your God. The, the inhabitants of Canaan knew that they were no match for the true God. They knew that they were doomed. So with the story told, it was time for the spies to make their exit. Rahab's house was literally on the wall of the city. There was a window there. She, she put out a rope. The, the spies climbed down this rope to escape But before they left, she took them aside and she asked the spies to save her and her family from pending destruction. Spies agreed, said our lives for yours, we we will take care of you. And then they skedaddled back to the camp of Israel. And when they arrived back at camp, they gave the report to Joshua. Joshua chapter 224, look at the words carefully. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And make sure you notice the words The Lord, the Lord has surely given us the whole land. They were totally emboldened by what had happened with the defeat of Sihon and Og. And now the words from Rahab, the prostitute, the hearts of the Israelites began to believe and trust that God could make this all happen. Chapters three and four, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. And just to drive the point home that God was in the middle of all this, God parted the waters of the Jordan River. Just like he had done to the Red Sea, 40 years earlier. Now, you may say, yeah, but it was just a river. No big deal. No, that, that would be wrong. First, you need to know that the Jordan River at this point is about 100 feet wide, 100 feet across. And in the middle, it would be about 10 feet deep. And it was during the season of the year when the river was at flood stage, which, which means the river was probably much wider and much deeper. This, this was a big deal not just for the sake of a miracle, that the, that the water would part and that the people of Israel would march in t- to the promised land on dry ground. It was also a huge deal to imprint on the hearts of the Israelites that this was all of God. Nothing would stand in God's way. Rivers, Sihon, Og, all their armies, a fortified city like Jericho, nothing would stand in God's way. And that quickly for the first time In 440 years, the Israelites were standing on the ground that had been promised to their great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. They were actually in the promised land. They were camped on the plains of Gilgal, just a short distance from the city of Jericho. And that led led to the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. And let me tell you, it was the strangest battle plan that has ever been devised. And make sure you note, this plan was all from God. It was all God's idea. He designed it, he dictated it. In Joshua chapter 6, verse two, the Lord said to Joshua, "'See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, "'along with its king and its fighting men. "'March around the city once with all the armed men, "'do this for six days have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. Now what we learned in verses 13 and 14 of Joshua 6, that they marched in a, in a specific order. First, there were the armed men. Remember, 601,730 of them. They had been counted just a couple of months earlier in, in the book of Numbers. Then came seven priests blowing these trumpets or these ram's horns. And then there was the Ark of the Covenant. And then behind that, was the rear guard, everyone else in Israel. This would have been like 2.4 million people followed the Ark of the Covenant as they marched around the city. Now we learn down in verse 10 that the people were to make this march without uttering a peep, not a word. They were completely silent. The priests were blowing the ram's horns, these trumpets, as the people marched around. They came to Jericho, they marched around, and they went home. Now, honestly, if I was a general, this this isn't at all how I would attack a fortified city. I'd circle the city with my army. I'd make it impossible for anyone in the city to go in or to go out. I'd literally starve the city out. But God isn't an earthly general. He has no need for an earthly battle plan. God doesn't need to wait months or even years to starve out a city. He can just simply act. And more, the point here was to prove a point. The point was that this was all going to be God's doing. This would be a a fight without a fight and it would all be orchestrated by God. It was all intended to drive one important point home. And that point was to be driven into the minds of every Israelite and to all the rest of the inhabitants of Canaan, the Lord is God. There's no standing against him and God wanted all of Israel to witness it, and it led straight to the faithfulness of God. You can read in Joshua chapter six, verses fifteen through twenty-seven, that the battle went down exactly as God said it would. For six days, the Israelites had been marching around the city. Those seven priests blowing on their trumpets, the ram's horns. Three million people walking around, walking around this city the armed men, the ram's horns, the Ark of the Covenant, the rear guard, and nobody saying a word. Every morning, the Israelites came up from the plains of Gilgal. They marched around that city silently, and then they returned to the plains of Gilgal. Can can you imagine the people of Jericho standing up on the top of the wall, watching all of this go down? At first, there was probably fear, but then they probably started feeling confidence. I mean, I can hear the people of Jericho up on the wall, you know, in their, in their growing security, calling out, I mean, if this is all you got, we got nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. I mean, they're, at this point, they're probably starting to catcall, call names, growing more and more confident in, the, in their city to stand against whatever the Israelites had. And then came day seven. The children of Israel marched around the city seven times like every other day, but seven times. The trumpets blowing, the people not saying a word. And the Israelites, when they heard that long blast from the ram's horns, from the trumpets, they all turned towards the city walls and all three million people shouted. They let out a guttural cry. And then the unthinkable happened. The wall of the city literally collapsed. And when it collapsed, it collapsed flat. It fell down flat, so flat that the Israelites were able to scamper right over the wall, right into the city, and they took it almost without a fight. The entire city was destroyed. The Canaanites living there were killed, and then the city was burned. And it brings us to the big lesson. And what's that lesson? God is worthy of our trust. In every season, in every situation, you can trust God. Why? Because God is always faithful to His promises. And the operative word here is not "is, is always. It's not sometimes. It's not maybe. It's not most of the time. It's Always. I'd encourage you to circle it, draw arrows to it, point at it. There is never a time, never an instant where God is not faithful and true. In fact, here's what the Bible says about God's word. Hebrews 6:28 says it's impossible for God to lie. Lying is not in his nature. He cannot do it. Everything he says is always true 100% of the time. If God said it, you can bank on it. You can completely trust it. So all the promises back at the beginning that we talked about, that God would never leave you or forsake you, that he he would never allow you to be tempted beyond what you could bear, what you could say no to, that that he would always provide for your needs, and on and on and on the promises of the Bible go, they're all true. If God could provide food and water in the middle of a barren wilderness for 3 million people for 40 years if God could cause the walls of a fortified city to literally fall down flat when they were just simply yelled at, then whatever you are facing is nothing to him. You can trust him. He's able. He can see you through. Which leads to a critically important point, the last point. It's the point of application. And it's the question, how do you develop trust in your relationship with God? And this is exactly what God wants you to do. Allow your trust in Him to grow, to expand. God doesn't expect you on day one of your relationship with Him to have perfect trust in Him. He's willing to allow it to grow, to mature, to move to a deeper place. But that is what should be happening. It should be happening in your walk with Him. The longer you are in relationship with God, the the deeper your trust should be. So how does that work? Well, let me put a few thoughts in front of you. First, you've got to commit to knowing the Lord. And this is not a casual knowledge. The goal here is intimacy. God wants you to have an intimate relationship with Him. Now, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, this idea of intimacy, has a sexual connotation to it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the New International Version says that Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant. Okay, they were in a sexual relationship. He laid with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now the, the word here translated lay with, in the Hebrew is yada, 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 yada. And the word actually means new. Laid with is, is not the great translation. Knew is, is really the word. Adam knew his wife Eve. It's, it, the, the word literally forms a euphemism for sex. And if you think about it, it's accurate. To have a sexual relationship with someone, you need to know them on a deep level. All things are peeled away. And the joining of a man and woman, knowledge, of of another person at the most intimate level takes place. I know her, she knows him. And God wants you to know him on that level, deeply, richly, intimately. And your intimate knowledge of God should be growing in three distinct places. You should know his commands, you should know his will, and you should know his heart. And if that's gonna happen, you must understand the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible is the place where God is revealed. If you want to know His commands, know His will and know His heart, you have to dig into the pages of Scripture because this is where it's all revealed. In fact, intimacy with God demands a deep knowledge of His Word and, and the call of God because of that is to be deeply rooted in his book. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And let me tell you, there's no shortcut here. There's no shortcut to this deep, intimate knowledge of God. If you're gonna be a person who knows the Lord deeply, And you're going to have to be a person who spends time daily pouring over his word. You have to read it and more you have to memorize it and more you have to meditate on it. You need to allow it to go deep inside of you and resonate within you and then you take the second step and that's to be quick to step into obedience. Be vigilant to saturate your life in what you know to be true about God. Obey Him. Ephesians 5.10 says, find out what pleases the Lord. And what's not written here, but it's completely understood is, and do it. Find out what pleases the Lord and do it. There's a strong correlation between loving God and obeying Him over and over again in Jesus's last discourse with the disciples. In John 14 through 16, he was up in the upper room where he had had that last supper, up in that room that he had this final discourse with, with the disciples. And Jesus made this point over and over and over again. And in fact, I put several references into your notes. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, John 14, 23, John 15, 14. Here's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey me. The words go hand in hand, love and obedience. You can't say you love Jesus and not be obedient. It's impossible. Love for Jesus will drive you to obey him. And when you get to know the commands and the will and the heart of God, then you need to be quick to obey. Jump at it. Go all in. Don't touch it with your toe and think about maybe waiting and no, just get in, jump, do, go, be obedient. Now, for the for the Christian, you build your trust by taking the step. You literally put God to the test. You believe what he promised. You believe what he said. And then you just do it. And then you take the third step to developing trust. You know what God wants, you get become quick to obey, and then you watch God move. When you're standing in the middle of God's commands, when you're standing in the middle of his will, when you're standing in the middle of his heart, he moves in power. It's, it's the way God works. When you align your life with God's commands, will, and heart, He moves in that avenue. You want your prayers answered, then pray the commands, pray the will, and pray the heart of God. Pray it and then do it, and then trust that God will move. And here's a truth to add to all of this. So many Christians are waiting for God to move. They're sitting back and saying, you know when God moves, then I'll move. When God takes a step, then I'll take a step. But, but, But God doesn't work that way. God is calling us to step out in faith and obedience and then watch Him move. The Bible's full of examples. I mean, we've just talked about one today. The children of Israel for seven days were marching around the the city of Jericho, just as God had said. And it was on the seventh day, the seventh time around that they shouted in in the command. If, If they had just been sitting in the camp waiting for God to knock the walls down, there'd be three million skeletons in the plains of Gilgal buried there just two chapters earlier as the children of Israel were getting ready to, to cross the Jordan River. Go back and read it in, 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 in Joshua 3 and 4. The, the priests were commanded to pick up the Ark of the Covenant, and when they did, they carried it down to the water's edge. It hadn't parted yet, and when the Bible tells us, Joshua 3 tells us, when the priest's feet literally touched the water, that's when it parted. That's when it parted. And friends, this is how trust grows. you you put the Lord to the test. And then when you understand that God is faithful, you move farther next time. Developing trust in God is really simple. You know Him. You become intimate with Him. And then you choose to be obedient. You step out. And then you watch Him move. And then when He moves, I want to encourage you to take a fourth step. And that's get a journal and write it all down. A journal is a record of your relationship with God. And listen, friends, make sure you write down in that journal exactly how God moved in your life and when you were obedient to him and to his call. If you would take time to do this, I'm just telling you, you would be amazed at how God has moved in your life. And here's the deal. You want this stuff written down. You want a record of the faithfulness of God in your life because tomorrow he's gonna call you to, to move again. He, you're, gonna, you're gonna read in his word and as you grow in intimacy, you're gonna find out that God wants you taking a step. And you want a journal that tells you the last 45 times I, I, I came to this point and I stepped out in faith and obedience, God was true. He was trustworthy. He did exactly what he said he would do. If he's been faithful in the past Therefore, he will be faithful in the future. I can trust him because God will not lie. Therefore, it makes sense to move. With Israel, the taking of the promised land didn't start with the land, it started with one city. It would have been easy to be overwhelmed by the whole task like their parents and grandparents were 40 years earlier. But God didn't ask them to see the whole picture. He just said, take one step. And honestly, that step was built on a previous step. God had delivered them from Egypt. God had parted the Red Sea. God had provided for them in the wilderness. God had taken Sihon. He had taken Og. He had taken the Jordan River. What's Jericho? It's just the next step. And when you think about it in those terms, one walled city named Jericho was no big deal. It was nothing to the power and the purpose of God. So the Israelites stepped out. Joshua 12, six chapters later, is a record of the list of kings that were defeated on the five-year military campaign of Joshua and the armed men of Israel. And I would encourage you to go to Joshua chapter 12 and read that list and understand that it all began with one city, Jericho. All those victories, no losses. But before they got to 20 and O, they had to get to one and O. And that was Jericho. And God was true and he was faithful every step of the way hey bow your heads would you do that and friends with your heads bowed i just i just want to ask you what what mountain are you facing right now what are you afraid of what is it that that keeps you paralyzed what is that thing what is that relationship what is that command of god that you know what you need to do. You know what God tells you to do. You know what God has laid in front of you and you just find yourself unable to step out. What is that thing? I want to encourage you to put it out there, right in front of your face. And ask God to give you the will to trust him. That he will see you through. That he will Make it so that he will not leave you, that he will not forsake you, that he will not allow you to have any weight on you that you can't handle, that he will provide for your needs. Would would you just put it out there and say, Lord, I trust you. And starting right now, I'm handing this thing to you and I'm gonna trust that you will give me the strength and the power and the ability to do what you want me to do. So Father, help us. Help us to be courageous in our trust. Father, help us to be like Israel, to know deep inside of us, to resonate deeply inside of us that you are able to do everything you have commanded and everything you have promised to do. Father, we give ourselves to you. We give these areas of our lives to you. And Father, our promise to you is that we will be different as we turn to you and align ourselves with you and allow you to have your way with us. It's our prayer, Father, that you would move powerfully and accomplish your will and your heart as we seek your commands. Help us, Lord. Is our prayer in the name of Jesus, we lift it. Amen and amen. Now friends, let me just encourage you that we're coming to a point of communion And this is a point of trust too. We're going to take these emblems, this juice and this this bread representing Jesus's body and his blood. We know it. We've heard it. They represent Jesus and his sacrifice for us, his laying down his life for us. We are so grateful for that. But do you really trust it's true? Do you really trust that when you Take these things and give them to Jesus that He really wipes you clean. 1 John chapter 1, verse nine says that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. God makes us right, He makes us clean. Do you trust the promise? I wanna encourage you this morning, friends, as you take these emblems to know that that sin in your life, that disobedience in your life is literally being washed away because of the power of the blood and the body of Jesus that was given and sacrificed for you. So claim the promise, claim the truth, trust that you've been made right, that you've been made clean. Allow that to envelop you so that you can step out in confidence that you are a child of God with your name written in his book and your destination heaven. So Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love that that passes into our lives. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to not only be grateful, but to be confident, not in our power, but in yours, not in our authority, but in yours, not in our forgiveness, but in yours. So Father, we lay these things into your hands and ask, you'll help us to trust that your promise is true. You have made us right and clean in your sight. And for that, we are thankful, Lord. And we lift it up in the name of the one who makes it possible, Jesus. And God's people said, "A."